We've been in a, ser- uh, a series intermittently here at In Town um, where we are looking at individual books of the Bible and just trying to get a feel for how they fit into God's wider story, what the, the meta theme, if you will, is of the book. And today we're going to be looking at a short, difficult, and wonderful book all at the same time, uh, the book of Habakkuk. And I'd like to invite Stacy Dombrowski up to read for us. Today's scripture reading is selections from Habakkuk chapters 1 and 3. The oracle the Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This is the word of the Lord. As we get started this morning, I'd like to thank a number of you who have, in effect, sponsored this sermon, Um, and that sponsoring has been uh, keeping me alive in the midst of 2020 through your humor, um, the passing on of memes on social media, my favorite of which uh, recently has been passed to be by one of my students. If you're familiar with the uh, film The Princess Bride, um, there is a scene in which Wesley, the protagonist, is strapped to a torture machine, and this machine sucks the life out of the individual one year at a time, and Wesley has a a particularly strenuous and painful uh, set of torture, Um, and then the torturer asks him, um, how did that feel? And the meme says, well, it depends. Did you suck out 2020 or not? Um, Here's the thing. Pain and suffering and death are horrible, horrible things. We deal with them in lots of different ways. Humor being one of those and and sometimes a very healthy one. But we deal with it in other ways as well. Sometimes we stick our fingers in our ears and we just try to drown out the pain, ignore it, perhaps numb ourselves to it. Other times we put our shoulder down and we push through it and we believe maybe if I can make it to the other side, I'll be stronger. Sometimes we fall into depression or despair. To be honest, sometimes we even feel so lonely and need other people to understand our pain. So we lash out and share our suffering with others. And the hope there at least being if, if I'm not alone in the pit, if somebody else is here with me, well, at least there's two of us. 
The question of pain and suffering and death and evil, especially in light of a God who we proclaim to be both good and ultimately powerful, is one of the most complex, difficult questions in all of our faith. And it's a question that, as Stacy just read, the prophet Habakkuk just opens his book with. How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? It's a difficult question, especially when we are in the midst of such pain. And such pain on top of all the normal evils and pains and sufferings of this world. We're experiencing a pandemic while we're also still experiencing being human. And so we do lose loved ones and we get sick. Our jobs are affected. Our kids are difficult. The election looms, injustice happens, and the world keeps turning. This morning, we're gonna look at Habakkuk. We're gonna look at his question. How long, O Lord, you who are a good God, you who are a powerful God, what are you going to do? Will you not come and save us from this? But I want to preface our conversation this morning by saying this. You aren't necessarily going to like what you hear. And the reason I say that is because uh, by and large, we have brains that have been conditioned in a modern and Western mindset. And what that means is this. We like things, whether we describe ourselves as logical or reasoned or not, we like things that way. We like arguments that get laid out and then are developed and come to a conclusion. In fact, for some of us, we even treat such arguments kind of as gatekeepers. We're not going to go any farther in our beliefs or our allegiance or whatever unless we are able to come to a resolution about this issue or that issue. We do it in politics. We do it in our choice of allegiance for sport. If we do it in how we deal with our family, we do it in every area of our lives. And so it probably won't surprise you that this question, the question of evil and suffering and pain and death and a holy and good and powerful God is actually, studies show, one of the number one reasons people leave our faith. It's one of the number one doubts that are held by people regardless of whether they would consider themselves a Christian or not. Maybe some of you are in that company. You're not going to like what you hear because Habakkuk is not a philosophical or a theological treatise. It's not coming at this question in that way. And I, I say some of this preface because two things. I don't want you to think that God ducks this question He's just answering it in a way that's not American. I also don't want to dishonor your doubts. This is a real question. It's a hard question. 
It's a question many of us have cried tears over or been angry about. It's a question some of us have lost loved ones philosophically, religiously, personally, relationally over. And I want to honor the depth of that pain. I want to honor how hard it is to wrestle with this. So I would love, in fact, to invite you, if that is a question that you're wrestling with, I'd love for you to reach out to myself or one of the other pastors. We would love to talk with you further about this. But it's not going to get tied up in a bow in 20 minutes. Your pain's worth more than that. God and his word and honoring the whole story is worth more than that. Here's what we do get, though. Habakkuk the prophet asks this question of God, and he gets a response he doesn't expect. And it's not in a philosophical or theological or logical end. And yet, there is something beautiful that we can learn from the actual focus of the book, which is not answering the question, but rather it's us learning from Habakkuk's experience of asking it. The book is set up, very short, only three chapters, in a dialogue format between Habakkuk and the Lord. And what I think the Lord would have us to think about today is that Habakkuk is just like us in many respects. He asks this of the Lord. He gets a response, and we can learn from that. It's not going to be easy. So let's pray, and we'll dive into the text. Lord God, I pray for all of us who have gone through so much this year. I pray for so many who hold real struggles and doubts. I thank you for their honesty, even as I mourn along with them, because we really wish it'd be easier. God, I cry out with so many of us who uh, are dealing with pain and suffering and evil and are not doubting and yet are hurting and pray for them as well. God, give us relief and strength. Help us, even in the midst of talking about how hard this is, to find you and to find joy and peace and strength. Only because of Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So it's a short book, so we're actually going to journey, if we can, through the whole thing, three chapters. It begins in chapter 1 bluntly, as I mentioned, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. We don't know anything else about Habakkuk at all. It's the shortest introduction of any of the prophets we have. And Habakkuk immediately jumps in in verses 2 through 4 with a complaint. Many of your Bibles have that heading as Stacy read, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? And he continues. The language here is important because um, as, it, as it just dives in, it notes the idea that Habakkuk is not asking this question for the first time. He is acquainted, as many of us are, with suffering. This is not a philosophical question for him. It's a personal one. 
That second part of verse 2 really speaks to me. Or cry to you violence and you will not save. It's the idea that this is not a, a line in a prayer journal that he gets to and he, he decides yet again, I'm going to pray for this. No, this is, this is immediate um, it is increasing in intensity. It's the idea here of somebody being mugged in an alleyway and they're crying out for help. And every moment they cry out for help and they don't get a response. The pain gets worse and the violence gets worse. Habakkuk is noticing and he's crying out over the, the deep-seated evil that he sees in God's own people, the nation of Judah, there are leaders who are ignoring the hurting. There are uh, people rampantly uh, having idolatry who are not following the Lord, not following his law. And Habakkuk has had enough. And he cries out to God. And God answers him. The first of the two answers from the Lord there in verse 5 through 11 and God answers him in a way he does not expect. In fact, God's honest about that. He says, look and be astounded. I'm doing a work in your days. You wouldn't believe if someone told you. What God is going to do to fix the injustice and the evil and stop the pain and suffering of the leaders of Judah enacting that against the people of Judah is to send a power to destroy them all. It is as if Habakkuk has complained about the roach on the floor, hoping that God would pull out a shoe and destroy it, and instead God pulls out a bazooka and decides to fix the infestation by blowing up the house. The Babylonians, or Chaldeans, we see in the text, are actually a, a new kid on the block. They are a young regional power that have very, very quickly arisen in this area. They're known for their speed at warfare and their brutality. They flatten everything they come in contact with. And so Habakkuk then responds in his second complaint or the second piece of this complaint in verse 12 through chapter two, verse one, with a, are you kidding God? Uh, this is God I'm talking to, right? I mean, that is effectively what he's saying. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? We shall not die. Really? You're being ironic. You're being sarcastic, right? No. He doesn't understand. He doesn't understand that aspect that God would fix injustice with effectively more evil and injustice. And he doesn't understand the fact that he's here complaining about the leaders of Judah and them being evil and them perpetrating suffering when Babylon is responsible for ten times that. The Babylonians were horrible and they had a reputation for this. How on earth? Is God condoning this? Why would God do this? And so chapter 2, verse 1 ends, in fact, in some respects, with a, a little bit of a snarky place. Habakkuk does what kind of I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, that gatekeeper approach. He says, I'm going to be a watchman, which was a role in ancient times where an individual, literally their job throughout the night would be to stand on the wall and make sure nobody attacked at night. So they would stay up. 
and they wouldn't look at their iPhone and they wouldn't sit around. No, they had to be alert and attentive. Habakkuk is saying, I'm not going to do anything else. I'm going to wait for God to answer me and he better answer me. And then I'll decide how I'll respond. I wonder how many of us have felt that pain, a pain that would maybe even drive us to such uh, absolutes. You felt the pain of praying, begging God, longing for something, and you just feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. I have. I do think it's important to, to note as we pause here just for a minute that Habakkuk is getting responses from God that are verbal, not at all because of him, not because of Habakkuk. The genre of this book, by the way, is a book of prophecy, which in the Old Testament sense is not necessarily a book about the future. It's just a series of messages that God wants to communicate to his people, and he picks some sad soul to do it, and that's a prophet. I actually had a professor in seminary who would say, you never wanted to be a prophet. It was a horrible life. It was like a curse being given to you. And so, and so it's just very, very helpful to know that, that Habakkuk, Habakkuk is getting these responses not because of his persistence, not because of his anger, not because of his emotion. He's not getting these responses because of him saying the prayers in the right way, some sort of ritualistic prayer. We know nothing about him. He's not getting answers because of his holiness. He's simply getting them because God has decided to answer. So I need you to know that as we move forward, just as a note of pause, if you're struggling through something and you are praying, we have it on the authority of Scripture that God does hear your prayers because of Jesus. Not because of you, but because of Jesus, God hears your prayers. But God's prerogative to answer those and how he answers those is not based on your holiness or your ritual or your religious fervor or, or, or your emotion or any of those things. It's, it's not about you. That might be frustrating, but it also might be helpful. Habakkuk gets answered again there in chapter 2, verse 2, not because of his, <clears throat> not because of his, his sense of, of certainty, not because he's a watchman, but because God wants the people of God, us, to have an answer. And this is God's answer. In chapter 2, verse 2, through the end of the chapter, God says, Habakkuk, you, you know I hate evil. I am who I am. The Babylonians will have their own comeuppance. The Babylonians will get wiped out just like Judah will get wiped out. And I'll show you that. He, he does. He gives them effectively a vision of the various things that the Lord has against Babylon. It's a vision of Babylon and their exploitation through violence and through economic injustice of those around them. It's a vision of an entertainment-laden culture that the uh, Babylonian leaders are so enthralled with that they ignore the needs of their neighbors. It's a picture of idolatry and greed. 
I actually love theologian Gary Bershears says this pattern um, actually comes to all nations. There's a reason that uh, those of you who are familiar with the book of Revelation know that Babylon is effectively the big bad of the book of Revelation. And not because Babylon will somehow have a resurgence one day, but because all nations who fall from the Lord effectively fall into that pattern of injustice and evil, including our own. And this is what's amazing. This is where this is where the meat of the book is. This is where we pause. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Usually you skip over these, don't you? The, the, um, the prefaces, the song, musician uh, words. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shugenoth. It's a musical term. We don't exactly know what it means. But here's what's important. There in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk was abstinent. He was angry. He was, I'm going to get an answer, God. You're going to give it to me, and I'm going to respond. And God does. He gives Habakkuk this picture of himself, of his holiness, of his righteous anger against evil. And instead of being indignant, instead of being angry, instead of having some witty response, to offer back to God, Habakkuk is floored. He's silent. We have no idea how much time elapses between chapter 2 and chapter 3, unlike all of the other responses in this dialogue. Chapter 3 is instead a poem. It's a prayer. It's a song that Habakkuk finally composes in light of this dialogue. And here is the content of the prayer. It's beautiful. You can read it, but here's the content. God's awesome. He doesn't forget evil. God, please have mercy. That's it. No more questions. The only longing is for mercy. This is where I think God wants us to look at Habakkuk and, and how we deal with our own pain and suffering in light of a good God. Instead of coming up with a philosophical or theological answer which, by the way, in some respects, tries to put us as equal with God, as if to say, God, you prove yourself to me, and then I will choose whether that's sufficient for my allegiance to you. Instead, what, what God says is, I've got to be enough. My goodness, my holiness... There isn't an explanation on top of that necessarily. I've got to be enough for you. A relationship with me does not answer the why of pain and suffering and death, but a relationship with me is what you get and what you need in the midst of it. 
So Habakkuk receives not an answer to his question, but a vision, a renewed reminder of who God is. And the only response then he has to his pain and his suffering and his, his sense of evil is worship. To re-engage in the relationship. So here's what I think this means for you and me. Because we are, nonetheless, in the West, and we think modern and logically, and I told you this wouldn't be sufficient for many questions, and I understand that. But I think what God would call us to do is to long for answers, not as a requirement for relationship, but in the midst of that relationship. Because sometimes he does give them, but at the end of the day, whether he gives them or not, the point is not the answer. The point is himself. The point is at the end of the day, you recognizing, me recognizing that the answer to pain and suffering and death is not an explanation of that pain and suffering and death, but it's the, it's the intimate friendship, relationship, knowledge of the one who will deal with it. So you, this morning, if you are struggling, and we all are to some degree, but if you have something specific and you know the moment we were going to touch on Habakkuk, that, that how long, O oh Lord, is a real prayer for you right now. God is going to deal with your how long. God is going to deal with, because he already has. We know all of sin and suffering and death forever fell on Jesus. Jesus literally experienced hell on a cross for us. And he will deal with it finally. So where there is no crying, no sadness, no suffering, no pain, and no death ever again. Of course, at the same time, we need to recognize that one of the great tensions of Scripture is that we're in the, in the midst of both, right? We can be the oppressed who have sin and death and suffering affecting us, but we're also culprits. And Habakkuk's woes, specific or not, they also point at us. We need mercy. God is going to deal with injustice and sin and death, and he's going to deal with our injustice and sin and death too. We need mercy. And so Habakkuk's words in chapter 3, in wrath, remember mercy, is our prayer as well. We get the how long and the God, please wait a little longer at the same time. And I think finally, if we find ourselves in the camp of those who are suffering and we find ourselves in the camp of those who cause suffering, and we find ourselves in the camp of those who don't understand and doubt God because of the insanity of it all, I think Habakkuk calls us 
to enter into a tension that allows us to hold on to our frustration because things aren't the way it's supposed to be without neglecting the relationship of God. I mean, think about Jesus. Think about the disciples, the motley crew that they were, the fact that they could not understand over and over again who Jesus was. Peter, who lops off ears. John, who possibly runs naked away. Thomas. Oh, Thomas. Scripture is filled with individuals who do not have the the religious icon status that we build up as the aspiration in our country to say, I'm going to be somebody who who is wise and content and therefore never feels things. That's not Christian. There are religions who would drive us to that ideal. It's not us. At the end of the day, God wants you to feel things. Not that he wants you to hurt, but he doesn't want you to suppress that hurt. But he wants you to bring it to him in the midst of your relationship. And I get, I get the struggles there. I get the authenticity struggles. The fact that, you know, I don't know about you, I find myself sometimes in these very seats or at home singing to God and realizing I don't necessarily think I believe the words I'm singing to him in that moment. Now, the the obsession with authenticity that the gatekeeper says, okay, well, that means I stop. I stop praying until I start feeling like I want to talk to God again. I stop reading my Bible until somebody moves in and inspires me to do so. No, instead what God is saying is keep singing the song and the song itself becomes a prayer of God, I don't believe this, but you're bigger than my struggles to believe. So enter into this mess with me. God, I am frustrated with your prayers or or with your lack of responding to prayers. So my prayers are going to start to get a little bit more frustrating, but you can take it and you love me. Forgive me when I sin in my prayer, but I'm not going to stop. Most marriage counselors, in fact, can tell you that the the real fear when there's spouse uh, fighting and strife is not when the fighting starts. It's when the fighting stops because people are just done. Habakkuk calls us to the same thing that the father in Mark 8 does an expression of saying, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I'm angry, but I'm not letting go of you in this anger. God, I'm hurting. Why aren't you responding but not stopping beating on his door to ask? And all in all, trusting, not in a contemplative perfect sense, but a real and raw sense of trusting that says, I don't understand God, but I'm still in this with you because you are still in this with me. How long, O Lord, I don't know, friends. And I wish God would give you answers.
but let's hold on to each other, encourage one another, and beckon ourselves forward into, not out of, relationship with God until the day we get answers or the day he comes to make all answers unnecessary. Let's pray. Father God, when I reflect on what Stacy said at the end, the last words of Habakkuk, words about fig trees, words about barrenness, olives producing no fruit. It could be poetry. It is poetry. But God, when, when I put that in our language and I think about saying, God, what if we lose our jobs? God, what if the budget fails? God, what if my mom or my dad or my sister or brother or son or daughter? What if they don't get better from this sickness? God, what if COVID doesn't go away and this is the new normal? God, I can't take it. Lord God, would you enter into us and not in a fake brainwashed way, but in a real way that is full of emotion and full of your presence and your friendship and your love? Would you allow us to say collectively and individually, and yet we will praise you with tears and gritted teeth as much as with laughter and joy if we have to, but God help us to praise you. And pray always in your name, amen.